All right, thanks. All right, guys, we're going to uh, do Psalm 51 this morning. We're going to do the first 10 verses of it, and as we're looking at it, I want to ask you some questions as we're going to go and read into the text. These two questions are important. First question is, um, how do you approach God when you sin? Do you even approach him at all when you sin? I want you to be thinking about those questions. I'll ask them again, but I want you to be thinking about it. How do you approach God when you sin? And we're going to really unpack David and how he approached God when he sinned. And then uh, the next two weeks after this, we'll have uh, Dr. Carter up. And then I'm pretty much thinking, because more than ever today... We need to be grounded in solid doctrine and theology. I'm probably going to be walking us through the book of Romans because it's probably one of the most complete theological works in the canonical books of Scripture. And more with all the stuff going on out there today, we need to be rooted and grounded in the truth of Scripture more than ever. So let's read David's Psalm, Psalm 51, just the first 10 verses, and then we'll unpack it. Starting at uh, verse 1, this is slide 3, I believe. Yep. Be gracious to me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the greatness of thy compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against thee the only have I sinned and done what is evil in thy sight so that thou art justified when thou dost speak and blameless when thou dost judge verse 5 behold I was brought forth in iniquity In sin, my mother conceived me. Behold, thou dost desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part thou wilt make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which thou hast broken rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins. Blot out all of my iniquities. Verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Again, how do you approach God when you sin? And do you approach him at all? Church, hear me this morning. If we are to be true to the Lord and ourselves, we must all confess that we have trouble with confession and repentance. We have trouble coming clean with God when we sin. Just like King David sinned with Bathsheba, our sins also violate our relationship with God and ultimately in some way 
will harm other people. How many times have all of us found ourselves saying things like, well, you know, nobody's perfect. It wasn't all that bad. Or the one that I hear so often, Pastor Jack, you don't know what I've been through. I'm justified in doing that. None of you all say that. You're all sanctified. It's okay. None of us, if we're honest, really get around quickly to repenting. And we may so often find ourselves soft-pedaling our sins. Or call our sin something far less uglier than what it really is in God's eyes. So I want to take a peek this morning at a wonderful model that we could all use for repentant prayer. Look at verse 1, slide 3 still. From the choir director, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. David says, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. I want you to notice on slide three here, he says, be gracious to me. So this begs the question, well, what is David really asking God here? Well, what did David mean back when he penned this some 3,000 years ago? What did he mean when he says, be gracious to me, O God? That word gracious here in the Hebrew text has this idea, church, of showing compassion or forgiveness towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. That's the actual idea of the Hebrew. Showing compassion or forgiveness towards somebody whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. Or the quality in God that directs him to forge a relationship with people who absolutely do not deserve to be in a relationship with him in the first place. Think about that. Let that sink in. The Greek word charis means undeserved kindness. Showing kindness to somebody without anything in them that makes them merit you showing it to them. See, one of the things we should see here is David understands that without God's mercy, without his compassion, without his forgiveness, David realizes he is totally ruined. You know, you can, you can almost sense David's emotion, his desperate clinging to God for his mercy. I think David has come to understand that until... His sin against the Lord is cleared. Any attempt to clear himself in the public eye and the victims of his sinful behavior would be utterly worthless. You know, he knows full well that his sin was motivated by his unholy desire for pleasure. How about us? Does that resonate with any of us? David sinned against his neighbor's wife. His desire to be intimate with Bathsheba became this inlet for all these other sins. And that's also why pornography is such an evil sin that can just ruin lives. So as we've all learned before, have you ever noticed that our sin has tentacles? Have you ever noticed that our sin, one sin, can often start affecting other areas of our lives? Have you noticed that sin really places you and I at a distance from God? Now here in verse 1, we, we see David's emotion. We see his groaning because of the horrible tension his sin has brought upon himself. 
and he cries out to God, Be gracious to me, Yahweh. Yahweh. David is showing us that when we humbly come to God in confession, we can have the confidence, just like David did, that God will then hear and answer our prayer. And as we learn from this verse, every person is bound to make a private confession of their sin to Yahweh. Look at slide four. Psalm 32.5. <clears throat> David acknowledged. What does that mean? I know what my sin was, and I confessed it. That's the acknowledgement. He acknowledged his sin to Yahweh. He says, and in my iniquity. What does iniquity mean? That's that destructive, perverse behavior. I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to Yahweh, to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Now, if that isn't powerful, that should be in your Bible, highlighted, underlined all the time. I know what my sin was, and I, I publicly acknowledged it to you, Lord. I confessed it. And in that iniquity, that destructive, perverse behavior, I did not hide. I'm going to confess. I'm coming clean with you, Lord. Yahweh, I'm going to confess my transgression to you. The result, you forgave the guilt of my sin. I want you to notice here also that David acknowledges God's great compassion. God forgiven David was a result of his mercy. And he still offers that mercy to every one of us. He knew full well that his sin deserved death, but yet God granted him life. That's the gospel. David calls him Yahweh. It's interesting, Yahweh is the name that is most closely linked to God's redeeming acts in the history of his chosen people. We know God because of what he's done. When you pray to Yahweh, remember, church, he's the same God who draws near to save you from the tyranny of your own sin and mine. Consider David's dialogue with Nathan. Now, we don't have time to read you know, chapter 11 and 12 of 2 Samuel, but you know, David should have been out, real, real quick synopsis out with his military, but he's resting on his laurels. He's in the tent. The, um, you know, he's there in his kingdom. And uh, it's interesting, you know, David was the last-born son and his father, basically the translation is, well, he's the worthless one out there. David grew up with a lot of well, pain in his upbringing with his family. Just by that one word alone, we know that's the worthless one out there tending the sheep. But that's a sermon for another day. But in Second Samuel 12, slide 5, 12, 13, David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against Yahweh. Nathan responds to David, Yahweh also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. In Psalm 51, David completes verses 1 and 2 with blot out my transgression. On slide 5, I want to capitalize that David uses three different words talking about sin just coupled in those verses there. And I want to make sure we understand what these terms mean so we could take the text and apply it to our life. What does it mean 
to transgress. Transgression, church, has this idea of crossing over a forbidden boundary. Love what James Boyce says, crossing the boundary of his moral law and at war with him in consequence. Boy, that nails it. You cross the line with the Lord and you're at war with him because you don't like the consequences of your sin. We rebel against the rightful sovereign. David then uses the word iniquity. That means perversion, destructive, perverse behavior. It's where we also use the words total depravity. <clears throat> and then the word sin, even in the Hebrew, falling short, missing the mark. Church, we never hit what we're aiming at by sinning, ever. All three of these words clearly reveal to us David's personal and moral failure. And we see he's using these words and he's coming clean with God. And David is doing what all of us as believers need to do. If we want to be different than the world, take full responsibility for when we sin, when we transgress, when we're in iniquity, when we are sinning. David comes clean with God and he says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Wash me. The idea of the word here David used comes from literally washing clothing. It seems David is thinking of the Lord internally cleansing his heart. And church, hear me this morning. We all need our sins washed away and understand this. The blood of Christ is the only thing strong enough to clean out the embedded sin in our hearts. Nothing else on earth, in the universe, no person can do what the crimson blood of Jesus Christ can do when he washes our sin away. But we need to pre-treat the sin stains in our heart first, and that's where confession comes in. Slide 6. 1 John 1, 9. If, there's your clause, if we homagaleo, if we confess our sin, if we say the same thing about our sin that God has to say, if we confess our sins, he then is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to continually, in the Greek, continually cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. There's your promise. If you come clean with God, he'll do his part. Slide 7. Continuing in Psalm 51, verse 3 and 4, going to notice these words again I know my transgressions I know I've crossed the boundary of your moral law and my sin missing the mark is ever before me against you you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge blameless when you judge not like humans notice what David says here slide 7 I know my transgressions <clears throat> that word know is the Hebrew word yada see David knows himself intimately and he has full knowledge and he knows full well how rebellious he has been against God he fully knows and completely understands and knows that he has sinned against holy God. 
He actually says in the text, my sin is ever before me. His ongoing sinful behavior continually haunts his mind. Ever notice when you're really sinning and screwing up, how it can keep you up at night? Preoccupying your mind? David says something else in verse 4 that could almost be considered controversial, but we're going to unpack it so it isn't. He says, against you and you only, I've sinned. Now, we know David not only sinned against God, he also sinned against Bathsheba, Uriah the Hittite, which was Bathsheba's rightful, lawful husband, and even against the nation of Israel. It's interesting to note in the text, I don't have time to take you back there, in 2 Samuel 12, the idea here, and this is why you guys need to study, David didn't send a box of chocolates and roses to woo Bathsheba over to his palace to be intimate with her. The, the Hebrew word when he sent the men out to her literally has the idea of seizing upon. Very interesting. That's what the Hebrew word means, to seize upon. You kind of wonder what was going through her mind. Was he coming to have me come to the palace because my husband was killed? Or one of my other family members that served in the palace? Well, there's a problem there. You can imagine the confusion that went through Bathsheba's mind. When she was out on the portico of her home bathing, that was ceremonial at the end of her cycle. She was cleansing herself, which was one of the rituals that they used to practice. She wasn't up there to do anything mischievous. Just keep that in mind. Yet he sent them, and the word means to seize upon. I found that very interesting. I can imagine how his ongoing behavior was haunting his mind when he says, against you and you I have sinned. So, how are we to understand what is being said here? Well, you know, I, I checked out James Boyce's commentary on this because he's a scholar when it comes to the book of Psalms. And he shares in his commentary what another great theologian said, slide 8. This will be actually slide 8 and 9. This other theologian's name was J.J. Stuart Perrone. Try to see if you can wrap your mind around this statement here. All tempting to our neighbor to evil is taking the part of Satan against God. Let me say it again. Try to wrap your head around it. All tempting to our neighbor to do evil <clears throat> is taking the part of Satan against God. And so far as in us lies defeating God's good purpose of grace towards him. All wounding of another whether in person or property, in body or soul, is a sin against the goodness of God. First, sin by its very definition is against God. Sin is only by God's law that sin is defined as sin. A wrong done to our neighbor is an offense against humanity in the eyes of the state which measures wrong by its own laws that wrong may be a crime. Slide 9. Only before God is it a sin. Second, it is only because God is in the picture that even a wrong done to our neighbor is a wrong. He goes on to say, all wrong done to a neighbor is wrong done to one created in the image of God. So you can kind of get an idea of what David meant. He wasn't dismissing the fact that he sinned against Uriah and Bathsheba 
and actually the whole nation of Israel, but you can get an idea there that first and foremost, at the top, he sinned against holy God. And that's you and me also. Church, hear me. No one can turn to God without first turning from his sin in real, genuine repentance. It's also important here that we look at the two different types of repentance. Put up slide 10. I want you to see this. This is very important. The difference between attrition and contrition. I don't want you guys to miss this. Attrition. If I am repenting with the idea of attrition, attrition is only a mere affirmation of sin. Attrition is completely devoid of any sorrow for what you and I had done. It is a selfly motivated response to a threatened punishment or a loss of something. That's attrition. I'm only confessing because I got caught and I don't want to be punished for what I did. <clears throat> the other kind, the biblical kind, is contrition. This is where you, if you're a true follower of Christ, comes in. Contrition involves a very sincere <clears throat> remorse for sinning and having offended God as well as others. There's a deep grieving in your spirit. There's a deep remorse for knowing that you have sinned against holy God. Consider the prodigal son here. I'm just going to get a couple verses, slide 11 in Luke. You know the story. The son, Dad, I want my inheritance. Son, you're not ready. You're still young. Dad, I want my inheritance. Okay. Gives him his inheritance, runs out. It's amazing how many friends you have when you got all the money in the world. When you got all the money, everybody's your friend. If you're wealthy, oh, they all want to know you. They're your friend. But the son foolishly did not listen to the counsel of his father. Blows it all. Ends up with nothing. Luke 15, he's coming back. Father sees him far off. The son says, Dad, I sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm not even worthy to be called your son, Dad. His dad says to his slaves, quickly, bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, put some sandals on his feet. Don't stop there. I want you to go get the fattened calf, kill it, let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead. He's come to life again. He was lost, but now he's found. And they began to celebrate. I want you to notice here that proper acknowledgement of sin. It's not just a mere turning away from sin, but the other part of metanoia is you're, you're turning away, you're going the opposite direction, but there's this move towards this positive and godly behavior and you're walking in obedience with the Lord. It also includes restitution when all possible. <clears throat> Here's something else. God's promises to you and I will always be stronger than our sinful intentions and behaviors. <clears throat> Your sin can never outdo God's grace. Don't ever forget that. But if you find it hard in asking for help from Yahweh, Ask yourself why. What treasures of yours or mine is threatened by asking God for help and repentance? What do we not want to give up? What, what sin are we pampering? What sin are we spending money on and investing in? What sin are we financing, church? Think about that. 
maybe it's alcohol, drugs, I don't know. What sin are we financing and we're, we're, we're feeding and nurturing? <clears throat> Let's never forget, God is the one that has always hurt the worst from our sin, church. Have you come yet to the place in your life where you can finally say, Yahweh, you're just in punishing my sin? Have you come to that place where you can actually say, you know, you're just in punishing my sin? When we sin, let's ask ourselves this question. What are we loving more than God? What, what are the God replacements that occupy our life and our home where we know it's wrong, we know we shouldn't be doing it, but we're doing it anyway? What, what, what loving duty to God have we pushed away and refused and replaced with a counterfeit duty to self? That's what David was doing. Look at verse 5 with me. Got quite near again, Dr. Carter. Slide 12. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. I was literally born in iniquity. In sin, my mother conceived me. That is true of every human being since the fall of Adam and Eve. That's you and me. We fit right in that verse. That is us. Scriptures are very clear. Because of our first parents, Adam and Eve's disobedience, that sin nature has spread throughout the entire human race. We've all inherited depravity. It's infecting all of us from the moment we were in the womb as the scripture clearly teaches us. God doesn't lie. He's telling you the truth there. That's not enough for you? Okay, how about some other verses? Let's let Scripture validate Scripture. How about Psalm 58.3? The wicked are estranged from the womb. Those who speak lies go astray from birth. You know, when our kids were growing up and we were kids, we didn't go to elementary school and say, now kids, first period you're going to learn lying, second period you're going to learn how to steal, Third period, you're going to learn how to do sexual immorality. We were born with a sin nature that has infected all of us. From the moment we drew our first breath of air till the moment that we drop over and die, that is a fact. How about slide 13? How about John, Job 14.4? Who can make the clean out of unclean? No one. <clears throat> and then Romans 5.12. Great corollary scripture to Psalm 51.5. Therefore, just as through one man, that's Adam, sin entered into the world, death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. Scriptures are clear. It is appointed once for a person to die, and then the judgment. Think about it, church. All of us have sinned, and there's that same Greek word, for the Hebrew word, we fall short of the glory of God. Church, through David here in this verse, God's calling us to trace our own sin all the way back to our own hearts. You know, it's very easy for us to self-advocate, and that's all in that movement today about self-care, self-advocating, and, you know, all that stuff. And it's very easy for us to be our own cheater and say, 
you know, I'm a good person. I'm a great person. But the real question is, what does the Bible say? Forget you, forget me. What does the Bible say? Am I a good person? Slide 14. How about Psalm 53, 2 and 3? God has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there is anyone who understands, who seeks after God. By the way, when you're dead in your sins, you don't seek after God. There's an acid test. If you're seeking after God, the chances are that you're, you know, he's going to save you or you're born again. But if you're not seeking after him, then there's an issue. How about verse 3? Every one of them has turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. Here it is, church. There is no one who does good, not even one. That's also Romans chapter 3, verses 11 through 16. If you want to look at the New Testament directly quoting the Old Testament of Psalm 53 there. And then Jeremiah 79. The heart is more deceitful than all else. It's desperately sick. Who can understand it? All of this should drive all of us to our knees to say, we need the Lord. We can't do it on our own. Let's check out verse 6. Slide 15. Behold, you, that's Yahweh, desire truth in the innermost being. <clears throat> and in the hidden part, you will make me know wisdom. Wow. Let me look at that again. I want to make sure you guys see that. I want to gloss over this. What does the Bible say? You, Yahweh, you desire truth, truth in the innermost being. And in the hidden part, you will make me know wisdom. You're God, the Holy Spirit. Bruce and I have said this a billion times. I'm going to say it again. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, of the triune God, who is a person, never, ever, ever works independently from the Word. Ever. Ever. When you're not opening up your Bible, you are stealing from yourself an opportunity for God to deposit wisdom in your life so you can grow and make decisions in your life which are more consistent with His will for your life. God does not only desire outward virtue. He desires inward purity, church. Keep in mind to the Lord, the inward is just as visible as the outward. David has done what all followers of Christ are called to do. He has acknowledged his sinful heart right down to the core. David does something else here. He's clinging tightly to God's work of renewal in his life. God is the one that does the remodeling project in your heart. But he uses his word, church. He says he desires truth in any of us being. God desires and delights in integrity right down to the core of your being. And truth, church, is always the absence of lies. 
We, we need to understand that there is a battle going on right now, this moment presently, for your soul. This battle is between the great speaker of truth, Yahweh, the Lord himself, and the deceiver who is Satan. God is the one who is seeking to deeply root you and I deeper into his life and his truth while Satan is trying to uproot him by deceitfulness and lies. Satan will always, always appeal to the flesh. He wants you to turn away from God to do things your own way. That's what he wants to do with you. He is a fallen angel. He is Lucifer. He wants to get you to take your eyes, just like Peter going out of the boat, and he wants you to put your eyes on, well, you know, that over there will make you feel better. Hey, just one more tip of that bottle, and it'll all go away. One more hit of that heroin, and everything will be okay. There is a war going on. So David says, you, Yahweh, you're the one that makes me know wisdom. It's interesting, that word wisdom in the Hebrew is the, is the Hebrew word chakma. It actually means a skill. See, wisdom, the Hebrew word is Sophia. Greek word is chakma. So the idea here is wisdom is the skill of taking the word of God and applying it directly into your life. It's a skill. I'm going to open my Bible, and when I open my Bible and I'm reading the pages of Scripture, God is now present with me there as if he was sitting in the church right now in bodily form. When God fills somebody with the Holy Spirit, he doesn't fill them two and a half quarts low. You get all the Holy Spirit you could ever want. Holy Spirit doesn't get, well, I'm only going to fill you a little bit. No. He will take that word, germinate the seed of that word in your heart and life so that you can grow in your understanding of Scripture. Make me to know, you, Yahweh, are making me to know wisdom. I really understand now, Lord, what sin really is. You and I need to look intently into that mirror of the Word of God which speaks truth to us so that we can begin to see ourselves as we really are. Ask yourself this question this morning, church. What does God want to show you that you have not yet seen about yourself yet, that he wants you to see about yourself? What does he want us to do? As the verse causes us to look inwardly into ourselves, think about it, church. Are there places in your life, in my life, where we are challenging God's authority? Because we want what we want. Are we challenging his authority? Perhaps seeking to take wrongful control and undermining God's authority. Running ahead of him. Thinking we know better. <clears throat> it's interesting, God's timetable is not ours. God may be patiently waiting, and you want something right now. And you think it's right, and you know it's right, and all that. And you're chasing after it. And God is like, wait, wait. God's not saying wait to irritate you and hurt you. He knows what's on the other side of that that you don't because you weren't born informed. Neither was I. We weren't. There may be something going on over there on the other side of what you want that you don't even know about yet. And God's going, wait. Well, I want control. I think I need it. I want it now. It's interesting how a desire 
all of a sudden becomes a demand. You desire something, and your brain starts saying you want it, and then you start thinking to yourself, I can't live without it. And that desire turns into a demand. And next thing you know, we're undermining God's authority. I see when I try to do premarital counseling couples, please wait. Let's give you the tools to make your marriage have a fighting chance. We love each other, Pastor Jack. We know what we want. We know what we want. We're living together anyway and said, well, that makes it right. Uh-huh. Right? None of you all have to worry about that stuff. Slide 16. Verse 7. This is where David gets really into it. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me. I shall be whiter than snow. He's not saying that to a prophet. He's not saying that to an apostle or a disciple. He's talking to Yahweh. He's making this request directly to the Lord. Purify me with hyssop. You do it, Yahweh, I'll be clean. Wash me. I'll be whiter than snow. Purify me with hyssop. Now, that word purify, we want to make sure, again, that we don't eisegete. We want to exegete. What does that mean? We have to ask ourselves, okay, David, what did you mean 3,000 years ago when you used the word purify? Well, the, the idea here in the Hebrew is the idea of purging, completely removing, completely wiping something out. David wanted his sin completely removed, wiped out, purged out of his life. Then we have to ask the question, what is so important about hyssop? Well, you're again, they didn't have Lysol back then. They didn't have that back then. You know, David couldn't say Bathsheba, run down to the local 7-Eleven, grab me a can of Lysol. So what was hyssop about? Well, hyssop is, is um, how do I even put it? It's a plant. And this, this hyssop has this detergent-like quality to it. In fact, the, the hyssop plant was used in several different religious ceremonies. In fact, it was even used, the hyssop branch was even used to sprinkle the sacrificial blood on the Ark of the Covenant. This represented the removal of sin through the shedding of blood. More proof text? Okay, I'm glad you asked. Slide 16. How about Hebrews 9.22? And according to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. I can only say this to you. If you are in a religion that does not teach about the blood, I'm pleading with you, run. Without the shedding of blood, there is no removal of sin church run if they're not teaching that you know the hyssop plant was also used to cleanse a person who had contact with a corpse so then what is David doing he's asking God to purge him from his sin how are you and I made clean how does this translate into your life and my life there's only one way that you and I are made clean And that is through the crimson shedded blood of Jesus Christ. It is only Christ who satisfied the death penalty that our sins caused. 
only Christ's church. David's heart was polluted with the crime of adultery, the crime of lust, the crime of murder and lying. And, and I'm fairly certain that he felt the stain of Uriah's blood when he had to put on the front line and killed to hover up his sin. Had him murdered because he didn't. He got Bathsheba pregnant. He was trying to cover it up. Abortion is sin too. That's trying to cover something up. You don't murder a kid. This is why we ask God again. That's why he asked God again. Wash me. Lord, remove the filth of sin from my heart. This, this washing, by the way, the word wash in the Hebrew, kind of threw me for a loop because I'm not a scholar like all you. So I had to look it up. And the idea of washing is literally of treading. I'm like, a stamping. I'm like, what? I'm like, you know, I'm doing a, a Rick Lurch. What? 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 The idea of washing in the Hebrew, the idea of trampling is they, they used to have a bin and they would put maybe some hyssop detergent or something and they would agitate. They didn't have Maytags back then that spun the clothes and did all that. So they were, you know, oh, we think we have it heard good when we have to, you know, put our washing machine on. And that's the idea. Lord, stamp out all of that evil sin that is just plaguing my life. Wash it out of me, Lord. He wants his heart thoroughly cleansed. Let me ask you that this morning. Do you want your heart thoroughly washed and cleansed? Church, our prayer of repentance should bring every one of us to the foot of the cross. Our sinful desires need to be brought and put to death at the foot of the cross. We need to put to death those things which belong to our fleshly nature. The sexual immorality, lust, evil desires, lying, greed, cheating, you name it. We need to bring it to the foot of the cross. Here's the thing. Someday you're going to drop dead. And you don't get a second chance. It is appointed once for a person to die and then the judgment almost time. Verse 8, slide 17. I like how David goes to the other side now. Through this confession, this repentance, this contrition, make me to hear joy and gladness. Instead of being sad and broken and haunted by all my sin and my brokenness. By the way, Satan will try to take your past. Now listen up. He will try to take your past, especially if you're born again. And he'll try to put that VCR tape back, and I'm aging myself now, back into player. And he's going to play that real tape, tape of your sin over and over again. And he's going to whisper, see, God could not forgive somebody like you, you filthy, rotten. Ugh, he could never forgive you. That's one of Satan's tools to try to have you haunted by your past. But if what David's teaching us is true, that was who I was. Don't have to deny it, but I'm a new creature created in Christ Jesus. So make me to hear joy, gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. What is the joy David wants to hear? Church, I believe that it is the joy that flows from hearing the word of God. Listen, 
Do you have joy when you are in the Word of God? When you're connected, literally? You don't need a Wi-Fi connection for that to happen. You don't need a router or a cell phone. You open up your scripture, and he's right there talking to you. <clears throat> I think the joy that flows from David hearing the word of God, in which he promises to pardon our guilt. Do you have that joy yourself this morning? He says, let the bones what you've broken rejoice. The eye here seems to be, Lord, break me. Bring me to the end of myself so that my mouth is stopped and I have realized that I have no act where I can make myself right with you on my own. Break me. Bring me to that end of myself. God get his best soldiers when they're on their backs, church. <clears throat> Keep in mind, our sin is not only something that we do every day in thoughts, words, deeds, actions, or motives. It is also something whether we want to admit it or not, is precious and intimate to us. Why? Because it flows from our sinful heart. I don't care if you ever paid a bill. Buy now. Pay later. Get this thing now. You've got to have it now. You don't want to start paying until a year from now. Buy it now. You need it. You can't live without it. Get it now. It's on sale. Get it now. <clears throat> None of y'all ever fell for that. I'm sorry. <laughs> Sign me up now. Think about it. It flows from our heart. When you and I sin, it's nobody's fault but our own. It's a choice that we make. Let me ask you this. Does your, fin, your, your sin feel so heavy that at times it seems to be bone crushing, weighing you down? Perhaps some of you here today or you listening around the world right now are in despair from what seems to be a bottomless depth of your sin and your bondage. quite possible that the bone crushing weight and pressure that you may be experiencing is there to drive you to the foot of the cross and onto your knees think about it Christ suffered the full crushing wrath of your father in heaven on, for all of you on his behalf when are we going to learn verse 9 slide 17 hide your face from my sins. Blot out all of my iniquities. You can just imagine the shame that David experienced at looking at a sin. What is shame? What is shame? Have you ever asked yourself, what does that word mean, the word shame? Church, shame is the experience of feeling humiliation or distress because of what you've done. That's what shame is. You're feeling either the humiliation and or distress because of what you've done. Guilt, however, is different than shame because, however, guilt in reality is the reality that what you have indeed committed is an offense and a crime. So the guilt is I've committed that offense and the crime. The shame is the experience that I am experiencing from the humiliation or distress because of what I've done. David, as we see through the text here, has experienced both and through confession and repentance what he wants the Lord to do with his sin, what he himself cannot do. Remember back in verse 3, his sin was always in his sight. Notice how David is now moving from a sinner who needs forgiveness to the Savior who forgives. 
and we're almost done. When he asks the Lord to hide his face, what he's really asking for is a pardon. This, this blotting out in the Hebrew has the idea of blotting out words on the scroll or wiping the scroll clean. That's what it really means. This actually represents our justification where God forgets all of our sin and our iniquity. It's a full pardon. doesn't mean you didn't do what you did, but it's a pardon. In Christ, God has indeed hidden his face from our sins, blotting out our iniquity. You can imagine all of the sins that you have recorded on a scroll and God just blotting it out with that crimson blood, blotting it, wiping it out like it never happened. And then finally, verse 10, slide 18. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. <clears throat> Here we see David finally petitioning the Lord for a complete inward renewal of his heart. Create in me. It's interesting that word create is the same exact word used in Genesis 1. Here's the difference. Ex nihilio. God did not need to go to Home Depot to create something. Didn't need to go to Lowe's. Didn't need to go to one of his stores. God can create from nothing. He doesn't need raw material. He spoke the world into existence by the word of his power. David's using that same word create here. See, we can only create using pre-existing materials. I think it's very clear that David understood this. David is asking for a miracle. He's asking for God for something brand new. And I don't have time to get in, you know, Ezekiel, but he took that heart of stone out and put in a pliable heart of flesh. Slide 18. Give me 18 and 19. This is an Ezekiel. I will sprinkle clean water on you. You will be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your filthiness and from your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart. I'm going to put a new spirit within you. I'm going to remove that heart of stone from your flesh, give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. By the way, the minute you come to a saving faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit permanently comes in and dwells you. Like I said before, the Holy Spirit doesn't say, well, I'm going to lease this heart for two years and then get out of here. It's a permanent indwelling church. I'm going to put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. You will be careful to observe my ordinances. David expressed here, church, that nothing short of a miracle from God himself could affect change in his heart. That's the same for you and I. He also shows us that repentance is a gift from God. Do you realize the act of repentance, the act for you to even be able to repent is a gift from God? You and I were born spirit, physically alive but spiritually dead in our sins. The faith that you need to come to Christ is a gift from God. Please understand that. Repentance is a gift. <clears throat> Church, God has attached himself 
to his people in order to change them from sinners into godly people, into his bride. David believes that God will take the initiative to restore him. So what is repentance unto life? It is saving grace that is produced in the heart of a sinner by God the Holy Spirit and the Word of God where the sinner so grieves for and hates his sin that he turns from that sin to God and endeavors to walk with the Lord in obedience. So you see your sin for what it really is. You grieve over your sin. When was the last time you grieve and wept over your sin? Then you turn away from your sin and you walk in obedience with the Lord. That's what repentance unto life is. The question, as I close, is we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Do you see your sin in your life for what it really is? Think, th- think thoroughly through that. Do you even care? That's the other question. Do you even care? How do you approach God when you sin? Do you see it for what it is? High-handed rebellion against God. Do you grieve over it? Literally, grieving is deep emotional pain. Do you grieve over your sin and how it has harmed the very God that knit you in your mother's womb that gives you every breath that you have right now? Do you have that desire in your heart produced by the Holy Spirit to turn away from the way you've been living and turning into and towards God so that you can walk in obedience with Him? Think through that this week, church. At this point, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. A couple of things I want to share with you about the Lord's Supper. The Supper is only to be shared by people who have come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. If you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the eternal Son of God, if you believe that he died on that Roman cross 2,000 years ago and shed his blood to pay your sin debt in full, if you believe that, and that three days later he rose from the dead and is seated at the right hand of the Father interceding for you. If you understand and believe that the only reason you will ever get into glory in heaven is only because of what Christ has done on your behalf for you, then we invite you to partake in the supper. If you do not believe that, then I'm going to ask you to abstain from that supper. Because the Bible says some people have taken it and have brought judgment upon themselves. This is a serious matter. When you are taking the Lord's Supper... You are proclaiming his death, burial, burial and resurrection until he comes again for us. So at this time, I'm going to ask the uh, people to come forward. They're going to hand out the elements, the juice, which represents the blood, and the wafer, which represents the body that was broken for you. I'm going to ask you to hold those elements so that we can take the supper together as a family. And again, if you have not come to a saving faith in Christ, please abstain. While they are handing out the elements, this is an opportunity for you to do business with God. This is an opportunity, if there's any unconfessed sin in your life, to confess it. Genuinely confess it. This is an opportunity for you to get right with God. If there's somebody that you have yet to forgive, this is an opportunity for you to forgive. You lay your gift at the altar, go be reconciled, then come and take your gift. So you have an opportunity here to do some very, very awesome things to show the Lord how much you love him.
because you are proclaiming his death, burial, and resurrection until he comes. So I'm going to ask you guys to pass them out. Again, please hold them so we can take them together. By the way, you guys that are at home watching right now live, grab a Ritz Craver, a wafer, or something like that, grab some juice, and you can partake with us. I will be reading scripture and then asking people to eat and then drink. You who are at home, I don't know what country you're in, you are more than welcome to participate with us with us. So you have a couple minutes to go and get your elements, some juice and maybe a cracker.
from the Word of God. We're going to do it right from Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul writing, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed, church, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us eat. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it and remember to me, for as often as you eat the bread and you drink the cup, you are proclaiming the Lord's death till he comes. Let us drink. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In Jesus' name, amen. Shake hands, meet and